that. Okay, that was my fault, not your fault. I just want everybody to know. I got nervous in first service when you were talking about uh, some of the books I had written because of the title of the third book. Um, my family was gathered at uh, Christmas or Thanksgiving recently, and my dissertation work is in uh, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, the similarities, the differences, and kind of the history. And so, you know, one would like to think that one's family is proud of that. That's not always true, right? (laughs) You guys have families, right? So the conversation came up at one of these family gatherings. I'm from Michigan, from the uh, east side of Detroit, And so my brother, I have a twin brother who loves to mix things up in our family. Like, his spiritual gift is instigation. Like, he's just born to mess with people. So he says, with some of my uncles who are not comfortable with all of the work and things that I've written, he said, hey, Josh, why don't you tell everybody about your new book? That's when I'm like, oh, I got a leg cramp. Oh. Um, So, yeah, that killed the family joy at... uh, that conversation. I have three sons, Lucas, Finn, and Oliver. And Lucas is my oldest, and he has just crossed the threshold, the spiritual quest of being a mama's boy, and he is now a daddy's boy. Finn, nowhere close to that. I'm just some dude who helps pay the bills, and I come home at 5.30 every night. Lucas... He's, he's my guy. And so one thing I've noticed um, in being a father, and one thing I think that's very important about the spiritual life, uh, is that our children teach us just as much as we teach them. And I don't mean like you're supposed to say that. I really believe it. I really believe that children have a, a window into the heart of God in a way that is not possible for adults to have. That's how strongly I feel about it. And I have always been a person who's wrestled with faith and doubt. I've always wrestled with saying Jesus is the Son of God and the resurrection and there's this heaven coming and it's on its way and God's going to judge the four corners of the world and everybody should be excited, not terrified. Like I've always struggled with, do you guys realize in church we say some crazy stuff? Frederick Buechner says, if you're going to be a Christian, you have to be, believe ten crazy things before your feet even hit the floor when you get out of bed in the morning. But I am a person of faith, and I do believe. But I also wrestle with doubt, and I ask God to help me in my unbelief. One of the things I've learned about being a father the last several years uh, is that children have a vulnerability that cannot be replicated. Like, they just kind of have a window into humanity that is so sweet and sincere. Um, My son Lucas and I were out yesterday, right before I was going to come to the airport. He was not happy. I didn't tell him until breakfast that I was getting on an airplane. And so he was not happy. And we were kind of having this back and forth about it. And why can't I come? And, you know, American Airlines is good, but they're not that good. I can't put you in my luggage. Like, that conversation... So he goes out with me to this giant hill we have in the front of our neighborhood yesterday at about noon. We call it Hard Work Hill because there's this Gatorade song, this Gatorade commercial that plays that song, Hard Work. Some of you will know that song. And my sons love that. Like they love to compete. They love to just be a part of whatever's happening. So they love that. 
So they've named the hill in front of our neighborhood Hardwork Hill. So we're doing our kind of little hill routine. And Lucas, after about 10, gets really tired and goes underneath the tree. So I'm finishing, and about 20 or 25 minutes later, I come to the bottom, and I sit under the tree next to him, and I'm just dripping with sweat. And he said, "Uh, Dad, how many did you do? I said, 30, which is more than I normally do. And he said, okay, I'm not ready to go yet. And so he goes back, and Finn is with me, the second son, so I'm with Finn now under the tree, and we're just kind of talking, telling stories, and I'm watching Lucas, keeping my eye on him. He comes back to the bottom of the hill. He says, okay, guys, 31. We can go now. And he's been like that since the day he could, like the day his personality came online. That's how he's been. We were driving to East Tennessee recently. I was speaking at a men's conference, and I took Lucas with me. It was for the weekend. It was an easy getaway. And on the car ride, he starts into this did-you-know diatribe. If you've ever had children or been around children, you know that one of the ways children's process is they love to say, did you know? And so he starts on this did-you-know kind of litany of things until he gets to U.S. presidents because they'd been studying them in his kindergarten. So he's doing this whole did-you-know, did-you-know. Dad, did you know that Abraham Lincoln was a president of the United States? Yes, I did. I love Abraham Lincoln. I'm I love everything. I love to read about him and learn about him. And Well, Dad, did you know that Abraham, like he's now looking for stuff like that Dad doesn't know. Did you know that Abraham Lincoln was born in Kentucky but grew up in Illinois? I did know that. Did you know, Dad, that he was poor, dirt poor? Dad, did you know that he grew up in a log cabin? I did, Lucas. In fact, yeah, that's part of his story. Dad, did you know the reason they put him on the penny was because he was so poor? (laughs) To which I thought, not bad. He's not on the quarter. He certainly isn't on the dollar bill or the $20 bill. This is the same kid who, when he was two, woke up one time in the middle of the night screaming. And I ran upstairs. And I realized he was in that half-awake, half-sleep state that children often find when they're just overtired. And so I went to grab him and, I, and just kind of console him. I said, Lucas, are you okay? Are you okay? And nothing. Lucas, are you okay? And I kind of shook him a little bit and he opened his eyes and he said, like a Heisman stiff arm, he pushed me away and he said, go back to Nineveh, daddy. <laughs> so at breakfast the next morning, I said to my wife, uh, can you help me understand what happened? And he said, she said to me, At Otter Creek on Sunday mornings, they've been doing several weeks in the Jonah story. He probably had a bad dream about the Jonah story because they were into, like, the intensity of it. So the next day in our staff meeting, I asked our children's ministry staff, I said, could we do more Sermon on the Mount, less Jonah? Like, more (laughs) Sermon on the Mount, less Jonah. But then they say stuff that breaks your heart. This is the part that people don't want to talk about. A couple of months ago, I was reading stories to Lucas at night, and right in the middle of the story, he said, Dad, can I ask you a question? Kids never give you a warning. Like, Dad, I'm about to say something you'll remember until you're 90 years old. Can you write this down? They never do that. He says, Dad, can I ask you a question? Will you always be my dad? I'm just ruined right then, right? 
Lucas, I will always be your daddy. Dad, how old are you? 36. That's old. (laughs) And he said something like, that's, he's about to turn six. He said, that's, I could put like six sixes in that. And I was thinking, I needed a tutor in college to help me understand that. I'm glad glad you have your mother's brain. Um, He said, but you're getting old. How old are you? 36. And then he said, uh, but when you get older, you die. Will you still be my daddy? And I said, Lucas, I can't explain it to you, but you will understand one day, I will always be your father. And then went down stairs and fell apart like I just watched a six-hour Oprah marathon or something. <laughs> okay, here's what I want to suggest. Those aren't just a bunch of stories a preacher tells at the beginning of a sermon. The thing that we love about children is this thing that the city of Allen needs. The thing that I love about my sons are the things that the city of Nashville needs. What I mean is there is a vulnerability that is sometimes missing in our church community. And our children are often the ones who are prophetically reminding us of this vulnerable place we need to be in. Not as being people who are postured as, we have all the answers, come on Sunday and we'll give you the answers to a test they're not even taking but to rather to be a community of broken, healed, wounded, hopeful people to say, we have found life in the person of Jesus. Come and see and taste. There's a fragility. There's a vulnerability that's often missing in our culture. So what I want to do for a few moments is show you um, how this works in the Gospel of Mark. If you have your New Testaments, I'm going to read from Mark chapter 9. And then we'll go over to a story in Matthew, and then we'll come back and kind of talk about our contemporary experience of living um, in places like Dallas and Nashville and how, what power Christianity might have at all. So in Mark chapter 9, about the middle, verse 14, this is what Mark says. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? He asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who's possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire and water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, Jesus said. I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. 
The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were. Okay. Now, if we had several weeks with just this passage, there's so many different things I would like to illuminate or highlight. Uh, First being, does God still do this kind of stuff anymore? I'll let Colin do that because that's a little Pentecostal and charismatic and that's not good for a guest preacher to tackle that one. Are people still possessed anymore? Are we so advanced in our scientific knowledge that we don't still have room for the spirit world working? But it seems to me this is one of those rare stories in the Gospels where the person who interacts with Jesus does something that puts himself for just a moment on the same level as Jesus. Not unlike a woman earlier in the Gospel of Mark who has this theological debate, this quip conversation with Jesus, and she says, even the dogs get to eat the crumbs off the table. When you read that story, you're like, man, Jesus wasn't being very nice in that story. For just a moment, she looks Jesus eye to eye as a full human to another full human. This is what the Father does. Okay? Now, what I'm about to say is not Jewish, it's not Christian, it's just human. If you are a parent and you have a child or a grandchild who has a sickness or a struggle or something that's holding them back from flourishing in life, part of what makes you a parent or a grandparent is you will do whatever it takes to repair that child to heal that child, to help that child become whole. Like, there's something intrinsic inside of you that when you have a child, like I have a child right now who wrestles with uh, asthma, two nights ago, it's 2 o'clock in the morning, and I've got him hooked up to the breathing machine. In that moment, I'm thinking, there's nothing I would not do to trade places with my son. There's nothing I wouldn't do if they had some kind of medicine that was safer. I don't care how much it costs. I would rob a bank in Jesus' name, right? You've got to add the Jesus' name part or otherwise you're a sinner. I would rob a bank so that he could have access to not having to struggle to breathe at night when he's trying to sleep as the seasons change. That's what it means to be a parent, a human that recognizes the first time you hold that baby, wow. There's so much more at stake right now than just my little world. Now I've got these eyes staring back at me. And in some weird, mysterious way, they're my eyes. When this father learns about Jesus and has a history with Jesus, he's not necessarily like, I believe all that Jesus has taught, or I believe that he can make the ancient confession of the church. I believe like he's the full son of God and son of man begotten and and the son of Mary and the son of God like he he doesn't care about any of that all he knows is people are saying this guy can do something about your son who's not well 
What dad wouldn't take their child to be with Jesus? It seems like Jesus recognizes this. Even though he's a little hard on the guy. Because I like Jesus is like a good coach. He likes to get the best out of it. He pushes people a little bit. But it seems like the whole story for me turns when this guy says, I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Now here's what I want you to hear. Crystal clear, HD laser focused, okay? If we could ask Jesus one question about this story, one of the questions we should ask him is, Jesus, what do you think he meant when he said, I believe Help me overcome my unbelief. Did he mean, you know, in the past I've been a doubter, I've kind of been a hater, you know, like I just don't believe, I'm a skeptical person, and, but I see this, so please help me in the future believe. Like is he looking at the progression of his past, his current, and his future and saying, I know who I am? Is he saying, you know, one day when I look back from now, I'm going to say, I don't remember the details. I, I just remember this prophet from Nazareth that everybody loved, and he did something. What exactly is he saying? Is he saying at every moment, in every situation, even right now while blood is flowing through your veins and air is coming into your lungs, even right now is he saying, you and I are a seething, living paradox of faith and doubt. I believe And I don't believe. I believe 80% and I don't believe 20%. Or I believe 20% but I don't believe it. I have both of these running through me. When things are going well, we're usually all theists. We believe in God. When things are difficult, that's when our faith gets challenged. And that's why country music continues to write hit after hit after hit, right? Some of it good. Some of it debatable. So, what we see in this story, I think, is a window into our own experience on planet Earth, the year 2015. Have you ever just taken a cursory survey of how skeptical many of us are? Those elders, I know they've got something else coming. I'm just going to give you a little secret as a guest speaker. Your elders are like my elders. They are just as unorganized and busy as you are. There's no grand conspiracy. Like I say that all the time. Like when people at Otter Creek are like, I know where you're leading this church. And I'm like, you do? Because I don't. (laughs) I'm just, we're trying to trust the spirit every week. That preacher, there's just something about him. I don't know what it is but I just don't trust them. That new neighbor that just moved in, I don't know. You know, they have two cars parked in their driveway and they got two different state license plates. I'm telling you, they're trouble. I think doubt and cynicism have become so normalized in American culture, we don't even realize they're toxic. We don't trust people. We assume the worst. And then we talk about how great it was when we used to trust people. 
And yet the very people who talk about how great it was are the worst at doing it in the present. And it's sick, you guys. It's sick. It's like a cancer. We're so cynical. We're so skeptical of, of, of people. One of the things I love about Jesus, Jesus didn't just see people for who they were. Jesus saw people for who they could be. He saw death and he said, I see life. He saw a woman who'd been married five times in the Gospel of John. And he saw the first church planter in the entire Gospel of John. The same person. He saw Peter. And he saw someone he could build the church upon. He not only saw people for who they were. He saw people for who they could become. I'm convinced that's why people love to be around him. Don't you love to be around people for see, who see you for what you could be, not just what you are in that moment? In Matthew, for instance, Peter is a great example of this. You know this story, but just watch how this works. In Matthew 14, the story picks up in verse 25. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw Jesus walking on the lake, they were terrified. One of them said, it's a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it's I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Now, again, there's so many pieces to this story. If we had six weeks, we could do it from all the different characters. But the one thing I know about this is Peter becomes the embodiment of what we just saw in Mark chapter 9. At this critical moment, when Peter is out in the most vulnerable place you could be, right? He's a fisherman living in a world which believed the sea was the most evil, dark, mysterious force in all of creation. And he's a fisherman. When he's out in this vulnerable place, he is having this crystal clear vision of what it means that I live with faith and doubt. It's not that that just sprung up. It's that everything else melted away and he realized who he was. It's why when you get cancer... You, you find out who you are. When you lose a spouse, when you lose a child, you find out in that grief, here's what I really believe. Here's my true identity. And it's horrible. When Peter gets back in the boat, everything and everyone is exactly the same as it was before Peter got out of the boat, except for Peter. He had to come to grips with what Jesus names in his life. Peter, you are a total combination of faith and doubt. And I still love you. <laughs> I can still use you. I'm not done with you yet, man. I promise. We're just getting started. The word that we use in English is from the Latin, two Latin words. The word we use is paradox. Paradox simply means you take two things that seem like they could never exist together. And when you hold them together, they're actually quite beautiful. Now, some of you know how this works. 
Because when the Red River shootout happens, you are a house divided, right? That's called a paradox. There should be a homicide investigation at some point. And yet some of you are Sooners and some of you are Aggies or whatever, right? You can ho- some of you are Dallas Mavericks, some of you are Spurs, and some of you who are really testing the grace of God like the Houston Rockets. But that's a whole other story. But you can hold multiple things that seem to contradict themselves. And when you hold them together, they're beautiful. That's the church. I love how Randy Harris said this. He says, lack of communication is the one thing holding some of our churches together. Because if all of you knew what some others of you believed, you would never be a part of the same church together. But the church is apparent. Like, when you look at Jesus' disciples, all of these guys you would never think would be able to be together. They fundamentally saw the world differently. And the table brought these disparate parts, these differing parts. And Jesus was like, isn't that beautiful? Have you ever tried to explain the Trinity to a Jew or a Muslim? So you believe in one God, but three gods? No, 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 no. And then you start like getting Kool-Aid out and you're like, okay, here's the sugar, here's the water. And they're like, what? One God, three different expressions. But Christianity has always held in tension that God is Father, Son, Spirit, one God. Jesus is fully God, fully human. Well, which is it? Yep. No, it's got to be one or the other. Like, no, it's a paradox. Paul says that if you really want to understand the kingdom life, you will understand that when you are weak, he is Strong. Jesus said, if you want to be great, you've got to be a servant to all. If you want to be first, you've got to be last. Like the heart and soul of our faith depends on recognizing paradox. I don't know, if, is that biblical? Okay, let's think about the season we just came out of. Good Friday is death. Jesus takes on all the death, all the sin, all the chaos, all the violence of the world. And yet, God raises him to new life. In Friday and Saturday, you have the truth that you cannot have a resurrection if you don't have a crucifixion. But you also have the truth that if you have a crucifixion without a resurrection, it doesn't matter. We hold things together all the time. Why can't we add one more to the list to say, I believe, help me in my unbelief. So this is what I want you to hear. Faith is not the antecedent to doubt. It's not the opposite of doubt. Faith is choosing to act in the midst of belief and doubt. Because you're always going to have belief and doubt at the same time. So faith means you come to the edge and you say, I believe so much, but I still have these questions. Or for some of you, I believe just a little bit and I've got all of these questions. But faith says, can you act? Can you move? Can you be faithful in the midst of the paradox of believing and doubting at the same time? And if there's one group of people on planet earth who should have room for doubters, it should be the church. Because of Peter, because of Thomas, because of all the disciples who thought Jesus had failed and didn't believe that he knew what he was talking about. And yet in his resurrection, Jesus says, 
all the doubters, you're welcome back. Thomas, I know you especially struggle with it, and you know that story. This is an image of what should be one of our heroes of the faith, Mother Teresa. Many of you know different parts of her story. When she received the Nobel Peace Prize, she was embarrassed because if you know anything about her life, she worked really hard not to gain attention. That was kind of her whole thing about serving the least in Calcutta. When she won the Nobel Peace Prize, she was interviewed immediately afterwards by a very well-known religion reporter who said, Is it odd, as someone who has spent their whole life in service of the poor and the sick, to receive so much attention? And she said to the reporter, Are you familiar with the Christian story? And the reporter said, Yes. She said, Do you know the story about Jesus coming into Jerusalem the last week of his life, riding on a colt or a donkey? And the reporter said, yes. And she said, do you think that that colt thought all the people were cheering for the colt? And the reporter got it. After she died, the world learned that she had had a spiritual confidant, a spiritual director, a counselor, a, a fellow priest, an American, who had listened to her. I want you to hear this for decades, wrestle with doubt. In fact, one of the controversies that surrounded her uh, death is the fact that her confidant, her counselor, chose to publish her letters expressing her doubt even though she had wished that not to happen. It's a big debate within the clergy and uh, therapeutic communities about confidentiality. But he wanted, and I actually disagree with this decision, but he wanted the rest of the world to know that one of the three most recognizable Christians of the 20th century, every poll has the same three. Billy Graham, Martin Luther King, Jerry Jones. Just kidding. Mother Teresa. I said Christian, didn't I? Never mind. Okay. Oh, enough of you don't like Jerry Jones. I can get away with that joke, right? I didn't say the cowboys. I said, okay. Mother Teresa... Billy Graham, Martin Luther King, the three most recognizable Christians in the world of the 20th century. Especially King and Teresa, but even on some level, Billy Graham, have been very open about their struggles with faith and doubt as they've traveled the world. Doubt does not mean you are weak. Doubt is not sinful. Doubt does not mean you don't have enough faith. Doubt means you're trying to be honest. But what I want to encourage you, especially those of you who really struggle with doubt, don't let it define you. Be honest about it. Be confessional. But there's so much more going on in the world than just that. Don't miss out on the rest of what God's doing in the world because of that particular part. Do it with your doubt. With your questions. At the end of Jesus' life, he shows us what this looks like. In Luke chapter 22, he says, God, if there's any other way. Now, we've so spiritualized this passage that what we don't realize is what Jesus is saying is, God, not only do I not want to be crucified, I think that there's probably a better plan. That's what the symbolic language of, in Jewish custom is with cup. Let this cup pass from me. Let this cup pass so I can have another cup. I want to try something else because I'm not sure this is the right way. 
if Jesus of Nazareth, the one in whom we have our identity, was able to doubt, who do we think we are that we're not allowed to doubt? It's part of what it means to be human. And it's part of what it means to be a child of God. So would you stand with me and read this prayer that's based on Mark chapter 9. Together we'll read this. God of all creation, our hope and trust are firmly in You. We believe. We believe You made the entire world in love and beauty. We believe You've changed the world through Jesus. We believe You used the church to be messengers of hope. Help our unbelief, Father. We struggle with doubt. We wrestle with uncertainty. But we believe. We believe in You, Father, Son, and Spirit. Help us in our unbelief. Let us pray as Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. As we, uh, as we bring this morning to a close,